Queensland and a large number of pastors, probably about uh, two-thirds of that, and delegates uh, came to the convention. And it was a touch of heaven. When people were singing together and worshipping together and praying together, whether individually or in groups, it really was a touch of heaven. And um, it was also an opportunity to share in what God's doing around the state, in uh, churches' lives, the starting of new churches, the uh, sadly closing of some churches in, in some towns. But there was an opportunity to boast. Now, we're told not to boast too much, aren't we? But uh, it was an opportunity to boast about uh, the churches in the north, our churches in particular. And so what did I say to people when they asked me, how's the church going? What would you say? Yeah? Well, this is what I said. I didn't have it prepared, it just sort of came, it prepared, it came uh, spontaneously. I told them that the churches that we are associated with are very generous. People give their time, their energy and their finances. And it's true, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago I shared with you the financial situation in the church and God has blessed incredibly. Not that we twisted anybody's arm, but God touched people's hearts and our operating account is in a healthy situation once again and, and Donna's so glad about that, she's sweating less. Thank you again to Donna who, who looks after that for us. I told them about people who love people and who have friends and family that they're praying for. And uh, everybody's expecting me to talk about numbers, the numbers that come here or the numbers that go to Yungabara. And that's not what, was, what I was proud of. I was proud of the people. I was proud of the church. And uh, excited for the potential. Over the coming weeks, I'm not sure when Karen will do it, but uh, I've written some summaries of the input that we received from some of the teaching sessions. Uh, Stu, Reverend Stu Cameron, he is the um, General Secretary of the Wesleyan Mission based in Sydney. And he said something interesting in his introduction. He said, uh, the, the Communist Party and the Wesley Mission are the only ones that still have general secretaries. <laughs> but anyhow, what he shared was, was excellent about uh, our, our situation as churches now and into uh, the future, leading into the future in, in times that are unpredictable and uncertain. So over the coming weeks, I've summarised some of those sessions and hopefully Karen will put them in the newsletter in the coming weeks. It was a great encouragement to attend the annual assembly meeting on the Thursday where some significant decisions were made and some reports were given. Uh, some of us would be aware of Mission to Queensland. It's, the, it's been known as the church planting uh, uh, arm of Queensland Baptist for a number of years. Cheryl and I were church planters with Mission to Queensland some years ago. And uh, they did a review over the last year or so on Mission to Queensland. And one of the things, the significant things that came out of the review was that um, evangelism, church planting and discipleship shouldn't just be an arm of Queensland Baptist churches. It should be the central core of every church. Evangelism, church planting and making disciples. And uh, over the coming years we'll see how that hopefully comes back to its rightful place in the, in the, uh, as the central core of the church's preaching the gospel. So we came back uh, hopefully refreshed. We did have a great time. It was good fellowship with people we haven't uh, caught up with for a while. Um, uh, but the problem that I find is a lot of people 
are getting older and uh, having more grey hairs. And, and so when I go to these uh, conventions, I go to talk to the young people, to the younger pastors and their wives and to find out what God's saying to their hearts. Some years ago, probably five or six years ago, I went to one of these conventions and I was talking to some of the younger pastors and their wives and said, where's God leading you? And I think I shared this with, um, with um, Keith Wormsley yesterday. I said, Keith, I was so disappointed because God wasn't leading anyone beyond the Great Dividing Range and beyond South East Queensland. No one seemed to hear God calling them anywhere else, whether in the state or overseas. And that disappointed me and I thought to myself, I don't want to go and again to one of these conventions and hear the same story. But I've got to say that over the years, God's changed people's hearts and a number of younger pastors and younger uh, pastors, wives and families uh, that I spoke to this year responded by saying, we'll go anywhere God wants us to go. That's encouraging, isn't it? We'll go anywhere God calls us to go. And, and many of them said, and we're waiting, we're listening for his call. That's exciting. That's what I wanted to hear. So that was our week in, in brief. And um, uh, everybody thought we were on holidays. Well, tomorrow the holidays start again. So we are away for three weeks, we'll say. But before that, I want to celebrate this week with you. This week coming up to Easter, uh, Christ's final week on this earth prior to his death. And I want to celebrate this week with you, Christ's final week, and with a subtitle, Hosanna. Do you remember that word, Hosanna? in the triumphant entry of Christ. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. If you have your Bibles with you there, you might like to follow along or the scriptures will be up on the screen as well. And this is what Matthew records for us in that final week uh, prior to Christ's uh, death and resurrection. Verse 1 of chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, so it was the disciples travelling with Jesus, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will uh, send them right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? What does does Hosanna mean, by the way? Save us. Save us is the word Hosanna. And so they were calling out for salvation from God in, in praise to Jesus. Verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazarene Galilee. So some people asked, who is this? They were unfamiliar with Jesus, just remember that. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, 
My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Verse 15, But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Let's pray. Father, we've read your word. We pray that your spirit will have our hearts and our minds in a fertile place so that we can understand it and then live it out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone has said that everyone loves the parade. Who loves a parade? Who's, who's been to a parade in their lifestyle? When we first arrived in Atherton just uh, over 12 years ago, we used to have the annual Maze Festival. Do you remember it? Who's ever been in it? Who's ever been on a float in the Maze Festival? You don't know what you're missing if you haven't. But I can remember it was the, the street of Athens, the main street of Athens was lined with people, whether it be on the footpaths or in the middle island, uh, to watch the parade go past, whether it was uh, a, a parade of 20 or 30 tractors at one stage or, or floats built by different community groups. It was to celebrate the fact that we live in an area that produces excellent uh, food and particularly the Maze Festival. And then it stopped for various reasons. But a lot of people enjoyed that and and, and even if they weren't in the parade, it drew a crowd. So imagine what that was like for Jesus this day. It wasn't a maze festival, but it was a festival to honour or a parade to honour someone. It was a parade to honour Jesus Christ. As he rode into Jerusalem, the crowds grew larger and larger along the way. Waving palm branches, putting their cloaks down on the, on the road for the donkey to walk over. Shouts of, Hosanna, save us now, fill the air. But within that crowd, as we read that passage, you may have observed some different types of people. I've thought of four different people that could have been in that crowd that day. I want us to consider these people and their views, their reactions, and then maybe it might give us some inkling to people's views and reactions to Jesus today and how we might declare Jesus to these people with these sort of reactions. We're going to consider the, um, the casual observer in the crowd. We're going to consider the, the callous critic in the crowd. We're going to consider the convicted sinner and we're going to consider the committed believer this morning. So, you know where we're going. When we get towards the convicted sinner, you know we're getting close to the end of the sermon, okay? The casual observer. They were in the crowd there that day they were the ones who, asked, who were saying, who is this? Because if they'd lived in Jerusalem, if they'd lived nearby in the surrounding area where Jesus travelled, he travelled within a 100 kilometre radius of Jerusalem, they would have heard about Jesus. They would have heard whether he was, he was the teacher or the healer or the prophet. But some people in the crowd said, who is this? They were attracted to the crowd, but they didn't know why it was there. Do you know anybody like that these days? This Passover celebration that everybody knew why, why they had come to Jerusalem wasn't the issue. People came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to remember that God, uh, using Moses as a leader, had brought his 
previously enslaved people out of Egypt into, on, on, to start their journey into the promised land. So people knew that. That's why they were there for the Passover week. But this crowd, this parade was different. It wasn't the usual thing that happened at a Passover. And so people were asking, who is this? They were the casual observers. And the thing that I've noticed about casual observers over the years is uh, they, they had no idea what was going on and, and frankly they couldn't care less. They just thought it was a parade, a party to enjoy. And I've known some people like that over the years, that whatever the church does in the community, it's well and good for the church and we'll appreciate it, but, but we'll just observe it, we won't get involved. We don't fully understand why they're doing it anyhow. In fact, they didn't want to get involved. They were content to stand on the curb or along the side of the road and just watch the procession go go by. There are people like that in our lives today. And Jesus knew that there were going to be people like that throughout the history of the church. The people would be casual observers, didn't want to put their toe in the water and and test the waters to see whether what these believers or followers of Jesus were saying were true. They would just watch. And sometimes they'd watch and wait or sometimes they'd just watch and do nothing about it. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus said this, He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. The casual observers couldn't care less. They'll watch but they won't participate. I want to say to you today that it's not okay to be neutral. It's not okay to be neutral. If we're neutral towards Jesus, it's just as serious as if we're ignoring him. And some people out there will say, "Um, you know, I never rejected Christ, so I don't need to accept him. I never rejected Christ, so I don't need to accept him. Neutrality, being neutral about Jesus, is rejection of Jesus. And there are people in our lives, in our families, Friends that are neutral about Jesus. They have chosen not to put Christ in his rightful place in their lives. They've chosen not to let him be Lord of their lives. They've chosen to be neutral towards him. If they're neutral towards Jesus, then I believe they they, uh, um, have an opinion of him that he's either a liar or he's crazy because he couldn't be the son of God in their opinion. And I've had people tell me that. We don't believe in Jesus, he's just an ordinary man. He had some, some great ideas, some great teaching, he's just, a, just an ordinary man. So they're neutral towards Christ. We can't be casual observers as followers of Jesus. There is no room for that in God's kingdom. We have to be willingly surrendered to Jesus, not just casual observers. Why do I know this? The writer of the Hebrews says this, Oh, I'll catch up with my notes. For if the message was spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received as just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. If we neglect, if we ignore, if we're neutral towards that salvation, it will be meaningless towards us. But... For those of us who have taken note, who are more than just casual observers, who are more than just a part of the crowd, it's of great significance to us. 
Sadly, there are many inside our churches and outside of our churches today who are simply observers and that is sad. They have not chosen to surrender to Jesus and to follow him. We need to be praying for them. If we know them personally and individually, we need to be praying that that their eyes will be open to to being more than just casual observers so that they will be able to answer the question, who is this? Perhaps they'll be willing to listen to us answer the question, who is this? So we might share with them the truth of Jesus. Not just caught, caught up in the emotion of the crowd but to have it as a personal reality in their lives. The second group of people were the calloused critics. Now look at these hands. You can notice that they're not uh, workmen's hands, they're computer hands. Anybody got calluses? Don't boast. Uh, Musicians, guitarists normally have calluses on the end of our fingers, don't we? And that's because we use those parts of our body, whether it be the hands or the fingers, lots and lots and lots to the point where they build up a resistance to the strings or the tools or whatever. That's a description of what these people were like. There were callous critics everywhere Jesus went. Everywhere the critics were there to demean him or to degrade him. Do you remember some of the stories? And they were there that day. The religious leaders were the callous critics there that day. In in Luke chapter six and verse Luke chapter six verse seven it says The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on that Sabbath. He was always being watched. The critics were always there. Maybe there's critics in your life. Maybe there's family members that don't understand your walk of faith with Jesus and they are out there to point out every time you make a mistake, oh, Christians shouldn't do that. You ever heard that line? I thought you followed Jesus. Well, I'm sure Jesus wouldn't do that. My, my response is, how do you know? Have you read the Bible? How do you know Jesus wouldn't do that? So everywhere, they, everywhere Jesus and his disciples went, there was those who were trying to accuse him, to, to um, degrade him. In John chapter 15, verse 24 to 25, this is what uh, John writes, if Jesus speaking, if I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So Jesus knew that the critics were going to be there. He knew that the callous critics were going to be there every step of the way. And we should be prepared too. Often we get get, um, disappointed when people criticise us for following Jesus, for taking a stand in the workplace, uh, of, uh, of, of not getting involved with some of the stuff that goes on there or in the community, not supporting some things in the community. It's because we know Jesus and because we follow Jesus. There will be critics out there. For every action, for every choice to follow Jesus, there will be opposite criticism. Have you ever noticed that? Whenever you've told somebody about your choices and what, how you believe God's leading you, there'll be criticism from those that just don't understand. Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15 says this. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. 
So it wasn't their hands, it was their heart and their mind. They had become calloused against Jesus. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Maybe we should be praying for vitamin E solution to rub into those calloused hearts or those calloused minds and I really believe that's God's spirit, that he'll be the one that convicts people of sin, righteousness and his his justice, his judgement. Maybe there are people that are critics in your life today and, and, and they've hurt you, they've disappointed you. Do you just walk around them or do you pray for them and say, Lord, soften that heart, soften that mind towards you. Jesus always responded to his critics He responded with grace, he responded with mercy and sometimes he responded with very strong words. These people had hardened their hearts against God and not only that, they had sought to harden other people's hearts. So through their influence of position, the religious leaders had tried and, and continually tried to turn people's hearts and minds against Jesus. Jesus had a warning for them in that same chapter, in Matthew as well, Matthew 23, he says to them, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So they influenced other people, their callous hearts, their callous critics, as callous critics had influenced others. Verse 15, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Pretty strong words, isn't it? Jesus was pointing out the fact that he knew that they were against him. He knew that they were critical of his ministry and how much they influenced other people. We have to be careful as we live our lives for Christ, that there, even though we might face criticism, we don't let it affect us. Do you know how much criticism affects you? There's a study done way back in 1986 uh, by uh, uh, an institute of family relations and they studied how criticism affects children. And it goes something like this. A survey asked mothers to keep track of how many times they made negative compared with positive comments to their children. The mothers admitted that they had criticised ten times for every time they had said something favourable to their children. A three-year survey in one of the city schools found that teachers were 75% negative and the study indicated that it takes four positive statements from a teacher to offset the effects of one negative statement to a child. So we've got to be careful that we're not affected by the criticism that people lay on us for being followers of Jesus and that we rest on what Jesus says to us and promises to us and put that criticism aside. There are some antagonists around and they will try and deter us from following Jesus and doing what he says. Someone has said that a definition of antagonist, and these are some pretty big words, 
someone who on the basis of non-substantive evidence, that means they can't substantiate it, goes out of their way to make insatiable demands, usually attacking the person or performance of others. These attacks are selfish in nature. They tear down rather than build up and are frequently directed against leadership. Isn't that what the religious leaders were doing to Jesus, these callous critics? We should be aware that people will try and do that to us as we live for Christ as well. Another story. A young musician had a concert and his performance was received poorly by the music critics. The famous Finnish composer, his name was Jean Sibelius, you may have heard of him. He consoled this young musician by patting him on the shoulder and saying this, Remember son, there is no city in the world where they have a statue of a critic. It's always those that have done their best. There's a Peanuts cartoon, I love Peanuts. I don't know if you can see that, I'll read it out to you. Linus is curled up in a chair there. He's reading a book while Lucy stands behind him with a funny look on her face. Then Lucy says, It's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. What happens? Linus asked. Lucy calmly answers, I can feel a criticism coming on. Some people like that. They have to be those critics of everything that's happened. And they were there... On that day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But there are other people there too. There were convicted sinners there that day. And we know that there were people who were following Jesus that had been changed in their lives because Jesus had shown them love, mercy and grace. He had been the light in their life. He had pointed out the sin in their life, the disobedience in their life. And they were following him because they trusted him, they believed him. There were convicted sinners there that day. In Isaiah, we read this verse in Isaiah 6, chapter 6 and verse 5. Isaiah's response to a holy God. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah was convicted of his unworthiness in the presence of a holy God. Christ. Christ's presence makes people ob- makes it obvious to men that they have disobeyed God. He's the light of the world. He's exposed people's disobedience. There would have been those people in that crowd that today, in that day. John chapter 15, verse 22, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. So people who are following Jesus knew that there was nothing, that excuse for sin means there was nothing that they could cloak over their sin with. They couldn't cover up their sin. The teachers and the Pharisees of the law had heard these things but they had responded in a negative way. John chapter 8 and verses 3 to 9 says this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap, criticism, undermining Jesus' leadership, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the old ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus convicted people of their disobedience. There were convicted sinners in that parade, I have no doubt. He brought that ministry of conviction but not of condemnation. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to lead the world back into a relationship with the living God. So you know where we are now, last point. There were committed believers in that uh, parade that day as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. They had searched the scriptures, they'd listened to Jesus' teaching. They had believed that he was the Christ, who he said he was and they committed themselves wholly to following him. To a handful of people in that crowd, they received Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So they would have been singing or crying out, Hosanna, save us, legitimately if you like. Other people in the crowd were hoping that this king, inverted commas, coming on a donkey would free them from the oppression of the Roman rule, that he would lead them into this utopia of peace but not those who were committed believers. They were saying, you are Lord no matter what happens. You are Lord of our lives. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this. Oh, sorry, missed it. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receiving the truth about Jesus, believing in his name. A few of those people would follow Christ regardless of the path that he had to walk on. They didn't know that he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to die. They didn't know. But they were willing to follow at that time. Many of us have heard of the uh, missionary, uh, David Livingston, and this is a story I found about him. I'll read it out. A missionary society wrote to David Livingston and asked, have you found a good road to where you are? He was in the thick of Africa. If so, we want to know how to send other men to you. Livingston wrote back, if you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. I want men who will come out of southeast Queensland. I want men who will come beyond the Great Dividing Range. Dare I be cheeky enough to say that. But God calls people to follow him and to serve him. And that's where Livingston was coming from. In fact, we're reminded in Romans 12 that we should offer our bodies, our lives as a living sacrifice. Paul wrote, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Commitment is what transforms neutrality towards Jesus into reality. When you agree to follow Jesus and make him Lord of your life, there cannot be any room for neutrality anymore. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. No other person can have influence in your life or should have influence in your life. Someone has written this and it's anonymous so I don't know where it came from. Commitment is what transforms a promise into reality. It is the words that speak boldly of your intentions. 
and the actions which speak louder than words. Commitment is making the time when there is none. Coming through time after time, year after year. Commitment is the stuff character is made of, the power to change the face of things, is the daily triumph of integrity over scepticism. That's commitment. There were some committed people, some committed believers in that parade that day. They were the ones walking with him, putting their cloaks on the ground, waving the palm trees. They were the ones shouting Hosanna at the top of their voice. This week, as followers of Jesus, what does this week mean for you? It's an ordinary week. For me, it means going on holidays. But, uh, but for us, it's a day-by-day living with Christ. Sure, we have this special focus of Easter. It's a wonderful focus. It's a reminder of what God did when he broke into this world for you and I, for all mankind. This is a reminder of Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, to pay the price, to die and pay the price for mankind's disobedience towards the created God, our Heavenly Father. We remember the pain and suffering of Jesus with him being unable to communicate with his Father due to the weight of our sin and our disobedience. But we also rejoice in the salvation that his death and resurrection bring to all who believe that he is the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. This salvation comes to all who will surrender to Jesus as Lord and Saviour, surrender their lives and choose to live in obedience to his will and is available for all people. So I want to encourage you this morning as I finish. I want you to shout Hosanna this week. I'm not going to give you a practice. You can do that on your own. Save now, Lord. Save now our family members that don't know you. Save now our friends that don't know you. Save now the people in our nation that don't know you. Jesus died for all. We need to pray that people will move from being casual observers or callous critics, that they will come to that place of being convicted sinners and committed believers that follow Jesus, whatever path he leads us on. Let's pray that way now. Let's pray. Father God, you have reminded us from a familiar story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. You have reminded us that he was going there willingly for you, willingly for the world. He's going there obedient to you. And Father, that what he did changed history. But we know, Father, there are people around about us, perhaps that we're in touch with in our lives, our families, that are just casually observing. And they appreciate the public holidays, but they don't recognise what they're for. Father, we pray that somehow you'll open their eyes in this this week when there's a a strong focus on who Jesus is and and what he achieved, I pray that your spirit will be active in the lives of our family and our friends, drawing them to yourself, Father. May they catch a glimpse of something on the news or catch a glimpse of something uh, on TV that just gets them thinking about who is this Jesus, that they might start the journey of discovering who he is. Lord, give us opportunities, we pray to be able to tell our family, tell our friends, anybody who will listen to us, that Jesus died for them. God, you love them. Jesus died for them. And they can come to know the living God because Jesus rose from the dead. 
We thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for the privilege of being committed believers who follow the Lord Jesus wherever he chooses to take us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.